urge you then, <laughs> first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is the word of God. Good everyone. Um, as Duncan said earlier, uh, we have come today to the very last of our five-part series. And I've heard many reports that it's been a really encouraging and grounding time for us, which is wonderful. Um, 500 years ago this October, uh, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses. Uh, now each week, you would have noticed, we've, uh, over the past four weeks, if you've been around, we've taken a journey back uh, in time, back in history, to help us understand how and why these truths, these core truths, were reclaimed and reasserted, and also why they're just as important uh, for us today. Last week, Duncan took us back to England, if you remember, to Lady Jane Grey and her courageous stand for salvation by faith alone. We've travelled back to Germany uh, with Luther uh, more than once, and for good reason. Uh, but today, I want to take you back again to the early 1500s, uh, but this time to Zurich, Switzerland, and to a man named Ulrich Zwingli. There he is. He's a handsome-looking fella, isn't he? Uh, like Luther in Germany, Zwingli had studied um, the newly published versions of the New Testament in both Latin and Greek. Uh, and like Luther, he came to see that Scripture alone had ultimate authority as God's word to us. Uh, in 1519, he became the pastor, the city chaplain at Grossmünster. I guess that's how you say it, I don't know. The great cathedral uh, in Zurich, and there's a picture of it there. Uh, he immediately began preaching through books of the Bible, working his way through books of the Bible, starting with Matthew's Gospel. And at the same time, he began to challenge customs of the Roman Catholic Church that were in opposition to what he saw in the Bible. And he strongly objected to a whole range of church practices, and he quickly gained support uh, from his many listeners. Even the city council became convinced of the truth of Scripture and began making reforms in the church. Not surprisingly, the Pope was angry, angered at this, and he called for Zwingli to be expelled from the city. But instead, the local bishop decided to allow him to defend his views at a public disputation. And so, on January 29th, 1523, 600 local citizens packed the city hall to hear their chaplain defend and debate his ideas with four Roman Catholic delegates sent by the Bishop of Constance. Zwingli came armed with 67 theses, uh, or articles, outlining his views, which he then set about defending from scriptures. 
of course. He began by introducing his theses with these words. The articles and opinions below, I, Ulrich Zwingli, confess to have preached in the worthy city of Zurich as based upon the scriptures, which are called inspired by God. And I offer to protect and conquer with the said articles. And where I have not now correctly understood said scriptures, I shall allow myself to be taught better, but only from said scriptures. You can see his basis of authority. It's crystal clear. Scripture alone. And the short, punchy uh, statements, the articles that follow, reveal much, as much about his character as about his convictions. Like Luther, Zwingli doesn't beat round the bush or leave any doubt as to what he's thinking. Here's the first three articles. I'll come up on the screen. All who say that the gospel is invalid without the confirmation of the church err and slander God. The next article, the sum and substance of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, has made known to us the will of his heavenly Father and has, with his innocence, released us from death and reconciled us to God. And third, the third one, hence Christ is the only way to salvation for all who ever were, are and shall be. And these and the remaining 64 articles in this disputation in front of 600 citizens, they were read out and defended by Zwingli from the Bible, no doubt with the same confident and assertive tone. And to cut a long story short, he defended his views, or rather the Bible's position, very well, so much so that the city of Zurich adopted his theses as official church doctrine, bringing reform to Zurich. And it didn't stop there. His reform spread to surrounding cities and then swept throughout much of Switzerland and beyond. Sadly, Swingley died just eight years later, uh, and ironically, he died defending his now Protestant city against a military attack by Roman Catholic forces. Uh, Zwingli's articles addressed a range of closely related issues present in the church at the time. Serious issues, some gross errors, and which Zwingli and the other reformers rightly opposed. But there's one of his little statements that gets right to the heart of the matter we're considering today and the reason Zwingli could say that Christ is the only way to salvation. In Article 19, he asserted that Christ is the only mediator between God and us. And you'll probably recognise uh, that as a shortened paraphrase of verse 5 from the reading um, Jim read for us from the Apostle's letter to Timothy, the young pastor. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So this verse, the source of Zwingli's 19th article, defines for us the meaning of our fifth and final Reformation sola. Sola uh, means alone in Latin, and you might have noticed each week as we've gone along that in each of the solas, alone carries a different meaning. We began with soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Alone, in that case, relates to the ultimate goal or purpose. The end goal of salvation, in fact of all things, is the glory of God. Scripture alone refers to the realm of authority. The Bible alone is the ultimate authoritative word of God. Grace alone has to do with method. 
or source of salvation. God saves his people entirely by unmerited favour, by his free gift of grace. And as we saw last week, faith alone, alone means, uh, refers to the means or the way we receive God's free gift of grace. We contribute nothing, as we heard last week, but we hold out our empty hands in dependent trust and receive salvation. And when it comes to Christ alone, the reformers were emphasising the point that Zwingli states here, that Christ alone is our only mediator. So what's a mediator? Well, if you type it into Google, the first result you'll get is a definition from the Oxford Dictionary, as it turns out. A person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement, a go-between. And there's some helpful synonyms there as well. Uh, arbitrator, negotiator, intercessor, reconciler, peacemaker. You get the picture. That's what a mediator is. Of course, people act as mediators in all kinds of conflicts and disagreements throughout the world in, all, um, in human relations. Uh, in families, between husbands and their wives, between parents and children, uh, grown-up siblings uh, squabbling over their inheritance, uh, in the workplace, even in politics, uh, even international uh, relations. Their mediators work um, to bring about uh, resolution to conflict. And in fact, wherever there are people, the world over, sadly, there are conflicts and strained or broken relationships, and often they need a mediator to hopefully end the conflict. But when we're speaking of Christ, the only mediator, we're referring, of course, to the greatest conflict of all, the greatest relationship conflict that there has ever been. The severing of the perfect relationship between God and the people he created in his own image to relate to them. Uh, all of us are, of course, part of this great conflict, uh, this rebellion against God that began with the very first people. Uh, and we're not just passive recipients of this either, we're actively involved ourselves, whether we feel like it or not. We're all separated from God by this vast gulf that our sin has brought. And between our fallen sinful humanity and God's absolute glory and holiness. Our greatest need is to be reconciled in relationship with the God who made us. We need the great conflict to end. We need peace with God. And for that to happen, we desperately need a mediator to act on our behalf to bring us back to God. And that, of course, is the grand story of the Bible. And so... In the Old Testament, as we see the story, this big plan unfold, we shouldn't be surprised to see that God appoints human mediators in order to relate to his chosen people, Israel. And the reformers and others identified three distinct roles or offices of these mediators, that of prophet, priest and king. The prophets mediated God's word to his people. The God spoke to the prophet who spoke God's words to the people. And they also spoke to God on the people's behalf. Priests mediated sacrifices and offerings for sin, for people's sin, so that they could dwell in the presence of a holy God. And the king mediated God's rule over the people, as well as his protection 
from their enemies. In each case, the person represented both parties. They represented God before the people and the people before God. They were mediators, intercessors and peacemakers. And they mediated every aspect of the relationship between God and his people throughout the entire Old Testament period. When we come to the New Testament, all three roles, prophet, priest and king, are shown to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. So the Old Testament mediators merely foreshadowed and prefigured Christ, who fulfilled them perfectly and fully. Their effectiveness for the people of Israel lay entirely in the one who was to come, who would fulfill them. Uh, They were just shadows and patterns of the things to come, of the great true reality, Jesus Christ. They anticipated the full and final mediator, Christ himself, pointing forward to him. So Jesus is the true and great prophet, priest and king. He's the true and final mediator in every sense of the word. So why was it so important for reformers like Zwingli to assert this truth at the time of the Reformation and to have to have a debate about it, to argue for it from Scripture? Why was Solus Christus, a Christ alone, so important at the time of the Reformation? The simple answer to that is that the medieval church had reintroduced human mediators. All three roles, prophet, priest and king, were to some extent reclaimed by the church. But it was the office of priest in particular and the sacraments that he ministered that the reformers rejected with their insistence on solus Christus. Not only were there priests again, there was even the return of sacrifices, as we'll see shortly. It's no surprise the reformers were strongly opposed to this. Um, They were in agreement um, with with the Catholic Church regarding the person, the nature of Christ. The problem was the work of Christ. The Catholic position on the work of Christ stems from its understanding of, of the nature of sin and therefore of the nature of saving grace. Um, the church had and still has a very different view of salvation to the Protestant view. Duncan's pointed out a number of those differences over the past weeks. But it boils down, in this case, to an understanding of sin as something like a disease, a spiritual disease, uh, not a state of utter deadness, as we saw two weeks ago in Ephesians 2. And so grace, then, is understood to be something like medicine for sin, to help us overcome sin in our lives, to live righteously, the end result of which is salvation, if we live good enough lives, basically. One recent author likens the Catholic view of grace to a can of spiritual Red Bull, which is an energy drink, in that it provides a boost of saving grace to help us in our fight against the sin that infects us, so that when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we will, hopefully, be declared righteous. And so righteousness, then, was seen as being infused into the believer, rather than imputed. We heard about that last week. Uh, Rather than reckoned from God, counted to us, 
uh, as a free gift from God received by faith alone. Now we need to be clear that the Catholic Church didn't deny the work of Christ. They strongly believed that this saving work was accomplished by Christ and his death on the cross. But because of this view, their view of sin and grace, the work of Christ needed to be applied to the believer frequently. You need your medicine frequently. Uh, So usually weekly, at least, maybe even more, throughout your whole life, so that in the end you can attain salvation. And the way it was applied to Christians was through the sacraments. These sacraments, uh, various sacraments ministered by priests. And it was the Mass in particular, which is the Catholic version of what we call the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take part in afterwards. The Mass became the central focus of the Catholic Church and the way um, believers could uh, access this infused grace, this dose of spiritual Red Bull. And this also became a major, if not the major, focus of the Reformers' tack in relation to Christ alone. Now, we don't have time to unpack the Catholic idea of the Mass, or, or the Eucharist as it's called, uh, but it boils down to this. Mass was believed to be an actual physical re-sacrificing of Jesus through the elements of bread and wine which are physically transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus upon consecration by the priest. It's what's known as the doctrine of transubstantiation. Needless to say, the reformers, including Zwingli, strongly opposed all of this. They utterly rejected these practices and challenged the beliefs that lay behind them from the Bible, of course. And the central question, when you boil it all down, was whether Christ's priestly work as mediator was finished in the cross of Calvary or not. The reformers found the answer to this clearly set out in scriptures in a number of places. Uh, nowhere more explicit than in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, several chapters of Hebrews are dedicated to contrasting uh, the priestly work of Christ with those back in the Old Testament. And if you've ever never done so, it's well worth reading the letter right through. Uh, but just a few key passages will make the point abundantly clear, as we'll see. Uh, up, up on the screen you'll see Hebrews 9:11 to 12. But when Christ came as high priest, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. In Hebrews 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for one time, sorry, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You can see that these passages, and many others like them, speak for themselves. God's word is crystal clear about this. Christ accomplished his work as high priest and mediator once for all in the sacrifice of himself. So any idea of a continuing sacrifices for sin 
made by so-called priests during the Reformation era and previously, uh, was an affront to Christ himself in the end. Now, it's worth pointing out that the Bible does teach that Jesus himself continues his role as high priest, but his ongoing intercession involves continuing application of his finished work to believers' lives. And also the, the New Testament calls all believers priests, but only because we have full access to God through the finished work of Christ and now proclaim him as mediator. There is simply no place for a special class of human priests mediating God's grace. And this is precisely what the reformers declared in the strongest terms. So Zwingli, in Article 17, stated that Christ is the only eternal high priest from which it follows that those who have called themselves high priests have opposed the honour and power of Christ, yes, cast it out. And that Christ, having sacrificed himself once, is to eternity a certain and valid sacrifice for the sins of all faithful, from which it follows that the Mass is not a sacrifice, but is a remembrance of the sacrifice and assurance of the salvation which Christ has given us. John Calvin's words were stronger still. This Mass, however glossed and splendid, offers the greatest insult to Christ, suppresses and buries his cross, consigns his death to oblivion. In the Mass, intolerable blasphemy and insult are offered to Christ. Strong words indeed. And one final quote from our own church's um, doctrine statement, Trinity South Coast doctrine statement, the 39 articles, uh, which themselves are a product of the Reformation. The offering of Christ once made is the perfect redemption, propitiation and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifices of masses, in which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt, were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. So these are the truths asserted by Solus Christus, Christ alone, at the time of the Reformation. That the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, is all sufficient to reconcile sinners to God. That salvation is always and only by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, plus nothing. That was the exclusive claim expressed by Solus Christus. And Zwingli's articles show this exclusivity. Christ is the only way to salvation for all who ever were, are and shall be. And who seeks or points out another door errs. Yes, he is a murderer of souls and a thief. So that's what Christ alone meant at the time of the Reformation. But what about now? What does it mean for us today? Well, for starters, it must be said that the exclusive claims of Christ alone, which are in themselves offensive to human pride in any era, are doubly offensive in our day. 
Our culture is defined by its rejection of exclusive truth claims, any exclusive truth claims, including those relating to religion, spirituality, or what we call faith, uh, and God. Compares Wingley's uh, article on the screen with this statement. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Thanks for that, Oprah. Now, it's not an Oprah original, of course. Uh, Many have said the same thing, and it's not a new idea. It goes way back to some ancient Eastern proverbs. But what do we think of it? What do we think of that, honestly? Is it possible to reconcile these pluralistic ideas with the exclusive claims of Scripture? Well, there's a tragic irony, actually, to the answer. According to Scripture, all paths do lead to God. Every person will stand before God in judgment. But according to the Bible, only one path leads to salvation and eternal life. So if the Bible is truth, its message is exclusive and so is, is offensive, will be offensive to our inclusive, inclusive culture where all religions are seen as equally true. The Bible's clear, very clear. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me as mediator. That means... And Peter says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no doubt about it. The claims of Christianity are exclusive and they will evoke a strong and even hostile response from our culture, increasingly so. But the gospel is, at the very same time, very inclusive though not in the way our culture defines it. It's inclusive even in its exclusivity because its exclusive message and the hope that it brings is open to all. Yes, God is sovereign and saves only those he elects. Scripture is very clear about that. But the Bible is equally clear that the gospel is for all. All who hear it and receive Christ by faith will be saved. The gospel is wide in its scope. It's an inclusive, exclusive message of hope for the world. Which means Christ is the only hope for this world. And every person in it is the only hope for you, is the only hope for me, is the only hope for our neighbours, our friends, our family, our colleagues, our workmates, our community, our nation, the entire world. One hope for all. The wonderful reality about this one hope is that its assurance is not anchored in the future, in something yet to come. It's not found in something we need to do at all. 
our one hope is grounded firmly in what Christ has done, in what God has done to end our great conflict with him. Martin Luther put it this way, and how fitting it is for his to be the last quote of our series. Luther says, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. You don't have to do anything to be saved. You don't have to do anything to be saved. You don't have to climb some mountain to find God. God has come down to us in the person of his own son, the God-man, Jesus. God has mediated peace and reconciliation. He's perfectly restored our relationship with him Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has offered himself once for all as a final sacrifice for our sin and rebellion. By his blood, he's satisfied God's rightful anger and holy justice so that we can be justified freely. And through his blood, we have full and confident access to our God forever. That relationship can never be broken again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Talk about hope. And not a maybe hope. You know, maybe hope. I hope this will happen. I hope it will happen. It's a sure hope, a solid hope, a guaranteed hope. And it's one hope for all. And I guess the question is, are you resting in that hope? Am I? Are you trusting in Christ alone, plus nothing? Or are you still trying other paths, maybe even other spiritualities? Maybe you're striving to be your own mediator, trying to work your way into God's acceptance even in the subtlest of ways. You can't ever rest in him, rest in Christ and in his finished work and enjoy the relationship he's purchased for you with his own blood. Stop looking in at yourself or around at other paths to God. Look up. And fix your gaze on the risen, your risen and glorified Christ who gave his own life to save you and to bring you to himself. Rest and rejoice in Christ alone. Of course, in application we can't leave it there. We can't leave it with ourselves. This news, the gospel, is far too good to keep to ourselves, isn't it? It really is. It must be proclaimed. It is a message to be proclaimed. If Christ is the one hope for all, then all need to know it. And if we have come to taste this sweetness of God's grace to us, his great, incredible love for us, we'll want others to know. We're caught up in God's great rescue mission. That's ultimately what the Bible's all about. God's 
great rescue plan for the, self, for the world centred on Jesus Christ. A plan to restore countless numbers of people to relationship with him for all eternity. And that's what the five solas are about in the end. They're not about cold dogma or doctrine, something to be argued over for argument's sake to, or to stir up those with different views. The five solas define this core message of the Bible. And it's a sweet, wonderful, life-giving message of hope for the world. And we as Christians are heralds of this good news. Paul said that himself in the passage we read earlier from 1 Timothy. I don't have a slide, but immediately after stating that Christ is the one mediator between God and mankind, he says in the following verse, verse 7, that he's appointed as a herald of this very message, the gospel. And we've been called to the same privilege and responsibility as Paul. Every time is a good time to speak of the gospel, but the Easter season uh, is a perfect opportunity, a perfect opportunity to share this good news of Jesus, to have uh, the courage to invite people to come and hear about the true meaning of Easter, the message of salvation found in Scripture alone, which comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of this, of course, brings glory to God and to him alone. Let's pray. Father God, these truths are almost too big to comprehend. Your incredible love for us in sending your own son to mediate this great conflict that we are all involved in. Help us to know this, this truth deeply. Help us to admit to our sin and rebellion and wrongdoing in our lives and how we, we live our lives as if you don't really exist. And help us to come to see this incredible hope, this one hope for all, that Christ, your Son, brings us to you by his finished work on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, that we can have full access to your holy presence for all eternity, not based in anything we've done or anything we can do or will do, but based entirely on your grace in Christ alone. We thank you and we praise you. To you be the glory forever. Amen.